are um, new to faith, uh, we take each week of the Advent season to be reminded of the Christmas story in various aspects and from various portions of Scripture. And so we've asked this year for families to help us with that reading. And then we light a candle that represents, as uh, we already heard, you know, one aspect of the story. So we'll be doing this and building on this throughout the next four weeks, Lord willing, as we uh, approach the Christmas holiday. So uh, that is the signal of the arrival of Christmas to us right now. This is, I don't know if you're ready for it. Anybody here not ready for Christmas? Okay. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> it's only December 3rd. You're not ready. Though it comes in like a flurry, doesn't it? It's the movies, the music on repeat. I'm telling you what, one of these Christmases, I'm going to lose my mind. Um, I, you know, we, Christmas starts early in the small house. And now that lovely little Alexa has moved into all of our homes and you can just say, hey, play Christmas music. And so um, I will go into rooms that nobody is occupying just to hear Jingle Bell Rock for the 18th time today over and over and over again. Because of my angst about the repetitiveness of these kinds of things, I have been somewhat labeled a Grinch in my family because everybody wants to start Christmas early. I used to freak out about that. I used to be, eh, it's not even Thanksgiving yet and all this kind of stuff. Now I've inher- I've passed that torch on to my oldest son. He's now that complainer in his house, I think. Um, but I've, in my old age, I've just given up and I've said, whatever. You want to put up trees in October? I don't care. Whatever you want to do. It's not quite that bad, but we know where it's trending. And um, I have as many trees in my house now as I have children. And you might say, well, that's not very many. If you don't know how many children we have, we have nine kids and we have at least nine trees. I'm betting I'm missing one or two because probably some of my girls have more than one in their room. I don't know. Trees, trees, everywhere, trees. I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'm never really ready for it each year. It comes on like a flurry. It comes in like the snow apparently we're going to receive. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning for some positive thoughts? (laughs) And the weather's coming and the music's on. I'm such a downer. But that's how Christmas arrives. It comes in. We think we're ready for it. And all of a sudden it's like, the pace has hit us and all the preparation, the... Uh, I, I wasn't going to eat so much this year. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, here, try this and try this and just comes at us. And then the blinking sweaters and all these other sorts. I just don't know. But on a more serious side, then too, we're not quite always prepared to deal with some of the family stuff that we have to deal with or the other consternations in our lives, maybe surrounding our work or our bills or those kinds of things. And Christmas has a way, at least culturally speaking, of of sort of heightening some of the stress and the anxieties that come with that. And and while we might be tempted to um, kind of... Uh, just kind of lament the fact that Christmas comes in that strong and that um, erratic, if you will, that this is really what Christmas was meant to be. And you're saying, no, it's not. Every year we fight for this is not what Christmas was about. No, the, the activity of Christmas was not what it was meant to be. But the invasiveness of it was 
The fact that it would come and, and, and arrive in such a way that people weren't really prepared for, not really ready to wrap their hearts or their minds around, that was the point of the way that Jesus arrived. It was the way, it is the way it is meant to be, at least it, it should be. Maybe the fable uh, that you probably have heard before would, would help set the stage for us here. The one where the, the uh, traveler going through the desert with his camel sets up his tent for the uh, cool nights. And as he's in his tent, the poor camel on the outside is kind of shivering and everything. So he pokes his head in and says, it's all right, because in the fable that a camel can talk. So if I just keep my head in the tent because it's awfully cold out there. Yeah, that, I'm sure that's fine. And then eventually that becomes the front legs and, you know, hooves and all and everything in there. And uh, it feels good. Now, yeah, can I eventually the traveler finds himself pushed out of his tent as the camel has made his way into the sleeping bag and everything. And he's just comfy, cozy. And the traveler is now on the outside saying, I, I set this up for me and now I've been forced out. And that's often what happens with Christmas in our culture today. Its original intent, its original design has been moved outside for Jesus to observe from the outside and say, this is what it was supposed to be about. And said, it's been this. We know this. This is a, an annual complaint that we have as we approach the scriptures. Christmas comes and presents all kinds of decisions, dilemmas, opportunities. And so we scratch our heads and we clear our schedules and we try to book things that solve the timing of how we celebrate Christmas, the location of where we celebrate Christmas, where do we go to this party, do we host the party instead, all these sorts of things. What's the setting going to be like when we're there? Is uncle so-and-so going to play along? Is he going to be good this year or is he going to have a little too much and then things get out of control and all this sort of stuff? We, we, we go through these ponderings trying to prepare ourselves for what seems almost impossible to prepare for. And so in a cynical culture, we have a tendency to be worn down and beaten down by these things. And we say, what does any of this matter? Why are we doing all of these things? It doesn't seem to be what Christmas is about. And I'm like uh, John the Baptist. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness and no one's listening. I keep saying every year we're going to do things differently and we never do. We grow increasingly cynical and think, what does all of this matter? The relevance of Christmas, though, is not determined by its reception or popularity, but by the impact that it can and still does make because of who it belongs to. I've titled this Advent series, these next four Sundays under the banner of his arrival is our rescue because my aim is to bring Christmas back into our deepest need. We know that as people, as a culture, as a society, as personal human beings, individuals, that we still suffer and struggle with loneliness, that we've been lied to, that it has caused doubt in our existence, that we don't know what we can trust or what's coming next, which of course leads to the confusion of our times. And all of this was going on at the time that Jesus was born humbly in a manger because he came to rescue our utter lostness. Jesus came to be the presence of, for us who are lonely. He came to be the truth to us who are lied to. He came to be the direction for us who are confused and stumbling about in the dark. And he came primarily to be the rescuer of our souls. 
So we're going to set the stage this week by going back to some of the origins of the story, just going back to how it all came to be and explaining some of the events, things that we've heard over and over and over again. In fact, we're going to be studying the Linus text. You know, that's the one that uh, Luke 2 is where Linus reads this in uh, in uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. And so we're going to go right to the traditional to break down a few of the components. What happened, though, in Luke chapter 1, before we get to the arrival of the Son of God, is that the prophecy had come all throughout history, all throughout um, the, it, Israel's history, through the prophets, the, the Messiah was coming, that rescue was on its way, but they just didn't know when exactly. They didn't know how, they didn't know who. Now, all of a sudden, it gets personal to a priest, a faithful and humble man named Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, in Luke chapter 1, are humble servants available to the Lord's will. And God comes and says, you, in very reminiscent of like Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, you are going to have a child. And that child is going to be very important to the people of Israel. The child is going to be very important to the people of the world because he is going to point to the fact that Messiah has come, that he has arrived Zechariah, not one of his finer moments, especially being a priest who knew the Hebrew scriptures would know that, you know, Abraham was in trouble when he doubted God's promise, but he probably couldn't help himself. He was faced with the facts that he was living in. And he says, I'm not really sure I believe this is going to happen. And so the angel of the Lord said, and because of that, you're not going to speak for a while. He went mute as a, as a, as a penalty, if you will, for doubting the will of the Lord. But lo and behold, Elizabeth did have a child. And she gave birth to who we know to be John the Baptist. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. And uh, there's an interaction there that we see in Luke one, where the two moms come together. And, and as Mary is coming uh, to see her uh, relative, John the Baptist, it, no, then he's just John. No one gave him his last name, the Baptist yet. Um, but John leaps inside of his mother's womb. And knowing that, you know, it must be knowing that something unique is happening or maybe just because John had that kind of energy. And so all of these events are happening. And it's in that moment, it's, it's in those times and in that period where the angel comes and visits Mary and says, you, a virgin before the Lord, you're going to conceive and, and bear the son of God. All of this is taking place in Luke masterfully wraps it all up and presents it in Luke chapter one. So we come to two because the time has come. So in answer to our practical question, and of course, we're not just going to answer these uh, questions practically from the surface level. Like if I said, does it really matter when we celebrate Christmas? We'd be thinking in terms of our immediate context. In our family, we celebrate Christmas two or three different times, depending on when the families can get together. Does that stuff really matter? Is God so locked in on the time and the season that these things should matter to us. But we're going to answer that question deeper. I am not weighing in on when you have your Christmas parties. All right. I'm not here to set any new traditions or tell you that yours are out of whack or any of those sorts of things. But instead, we're going to look at what does it mean when, when, when Luke says in those days in verse one, what is he referring to? What days? What's taking place? What's happening here? Because I'm, I'm contending that the time of day in which we celebrate Christmas or the season in which we celebrate Christmas matters. But I am not contending for an hour of the day or a winter season versus a summer season or any of those things. 
throughout the scripture, we see night compared to something that is um, uh, metaphoric for our lostness, for our stumbling around in the dark. We even associate Christmas in so many ways with evening, our carols, our traditions. We all think of Christmas often as the, you know, the sun's gone down, the snow is falling, and we're having our celebrations and our gatherings in the evening. We picture the arrival of Jesus in the evening. We picture the, the um, wise men and, the, and, and all the activity of the manger taking place and the stars are out and everything. That's where our minds go. Well, the scriptures don't move us very far from that because the metaphor that it plays out is that when Christmas came, it was at the peak of our lostness and our lostness is equated with darkness. And even though we've become to, we've come to celebrate Christmas in December, the biblical clues are that, that the actual event of Jesus' birth wouldn't have happened in the cold darkness of winter, but would have been more at the time where they could be in the fields, which would have been between March and November, cultivating the land. These aren't fields that are just kind of like blowing, uh, with overgrown grass and that kind of thing. This is workable land. And this is all happening in a season where this land could be cultivated. And those that were working the land were, if they were faithful to the Lord's command, they'd remember in Leviticus the instruction for gleaning from your own field and then also leaving the gate open, so to speak, for others to come in after you've gotten your harvest to leave the gate open so that others, the poor and the marginalized and others can come in and gain something from what you've decided you don't need. And you've left some for them. And you could even have an opportunity to be even more charitable by saying, okay, I know we could take all this, but we're going to leave some because we want others to come in and benefit from that. This was all taking place um, in that uh, from that March to November season. But most likely they're gleaning for the those tilling the, the fields. And, and I mean, uh, harvesting the fields and stuff would have been June or July. And the shepherds would have been allowed in somewhere between middle of August, early October, that season. So as the angel comes to the shepherds and says, go to them, and, I mean, go to uh, Bethlehem and see the baby in a manger, the angel is coming to them at a season that is well before what we recognize the Christmas season to be. And I don't know all the history, or nor do we have the time or interest to get into the shifting of dates. But there was a season uh, in Roman culture in that in that winter solstice thing where there was a lot of partying and revelry. revelry. There was gift exchange. There was all those kinds of things. And so it seems as though the Christmas celebration moved more into that season to create that alternative for the pagan idolatry that was happening at the time. I find it interesting sometimes we get picked on, if you will, as a Christian culture from those that would say that none of this matters by saying you don't even celebrate when Jesus came and all that stuff. You guys are all over the map with this. But if we look closely into the migrations of things in history, we see that most of them have important points. They don't just happen automatically or someone was too ignorant to see a calendar or to know what some of these clues were in the scriptures. The point, though, is that the time of day or the season has much deeper significance to us than just what time of day or what month do we celebrate Christmas? Because, as I said, this darkness that the scripture speaks of is associated with our lostness. We know that darkness is over our moral landscape. We know that it has invaded our politics. We know that it rests over our institutions And if we're being honest, it lives within us as well. We ourselves were born in utter darkness. 
John, in announcing the arrival of the light of the world, he has this to say. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's important before we get to the celebration of Christmas and the joy of it and all that we all that we um, appreciate now that we're looking back on Jesus arrival. We have to understand the condition that was taking place at the time. And we're also going to advance it to our condition today. The light came to break into real darkness, but darkness was unable to break itself free. I heard something along those lines in Pastor Gary's presentation at at communion, we are unable to save ourselves. And, and this, uh, this message from John even says, and we don't even really want to. That when we're in that darkness and we're so trapped in it, that we're so favored, uh, we so favor it, that it's comfortable to us. It's familiar to us. And light comes in and invades and it's like flipping on a light after your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and you kind of see the furniture. Someone comes in and just flips that switch and you're like, oh, a little warning, please. This is the arrival of the light of our salvation. Again, as we spend a little bit more time looking at our need and why light was required, we have to understand that the darkness of our condition says that we were sinful by nature, but also by our own choice. David had said that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him. Of course, he's not just speaking for him. He's not saying, yeah, I had a bad upbringing or I was off to the wrong start. He's speaking for all of us. That we were brought forth in iniquity. That because we are relatives of Adam, we were conceived in sin. Before we could do anything wrong, we already were wrong. That's dark. That's bleak. That's hopeless. That's the cold of winter. That is all of the, 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 uh, the, the, the depth of how far gone we were. The scriptures tell us that our sin ran deep and broad. It was broad because it affects all of us. It's a universal problem. We heard already that Romans 3 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But our sin runs deep in the fact that it affects everything in us. Jeremiah had said that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. That's why in our announcements, we got the recap of the women's retreat. The reason why the heart of every issue is the heart is because that is the center of who we are. And that is who Jesus, that is what Jesus came to redeem and to win back to himself. Because in our hearts dwells no good thing. Our sin runs broad in that it affects everybody. Our sin runs deep in that it affects everything about us. Wouldn't it be nice if there's just one part of our lives that didn't have some kind of taint to it or some kind of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of disadvantage? But no, the scriptures tell us that all of us through and through is tainted with sin apart from the rescue of Christ. So the result of that condition is that we become alienated from God. We, in our minds, we go back to the garden of Eden in Genesis. And we see that as Adam and Eve sinned, the consequence of that was yes, a a death would come never God's intention that his creation would die. But now that's been sentenced on them. But now you also have to move out. You can't stay in perfection anymore that that they were kicked out of the garden. And that is what we have become in the death of our sin. We are now alienated from God. 
and even under God's wrath. Because of God's holiness, he rejects evil. In Romans 1, we see that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is not a jingle bells kind of Christmas message, is it? It's important for us to understand why Christmas had to come. Why Jesus needed to be born, because that's where we find hope and celebration. It matters when we celebrate Christmas, because the hour we live in is bleak and hopeless without the rescue of Christ. Paul, in quoting the prophets, has said that in a favorable time, I, that's God, listen to you, and in a day of salvation... I have helped you. You see, as the scriptures points to the darkness as being metaphoric to our lostness and our inability to save ourselves, it also helps us to see that the day is when we seek salvation. So Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So to answer our first question, does it matter when? Of course it does. It is only Christmas in the daytime. Second practical question would be, does it matter why we celebrate Christmas? Christmas, We have clearly lost our way, culturally speaking, on the whys, but why does it matter? Are we able to explain it more from just a historical perspective to understand why we do? So the scripture, we'll go back to the beginning of Luke 2, says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Your version might say taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. What I want us to see from this is that there is a human occasion of events, as is always the case. Mankind orchestrates certain things, sends certain things in motion, thinking we answer to ourselves is just the best idea we could come up with the time or this is what I want to see happen. And all of those things answer to the sovereignty or the power of who God is on his throne. And so this is no uh, difference. We know that it's probably even more poignant uh, with what's going to happen. That here Caesar Augustus is going to make a decree thinking this is what I should do. This is what I want to do. This is just good leadership on my part. Or it's a means to an end of something I want. And Caesar here is a title. This is something that's not what he was named at birth. It is the title of his position. And and Augustus, you would say, is the august one, but he's the exalted or the majestic one is what his name would mean. Some would even nickname him the savior of the world after a 45-year strong reign in his throne, if you will. He is going to decree a taxation or a registration, a census, which is either for the purpose of like military drafting and knowledge and that sort of stuff, or it is to tax the people. And that's what we see happening here. In the Roman government, somewhere around 25% of people's livelihoods and incomes and all that sort of stuff was taxed back to the government in which Caesar Augustus would use to uh, try to provide some relative stability around the world and maintain his seat, all those kinds of things. So this is what's happening. What doesn't seem to be clear is why they have to go to the place of their lineage. This doesn't seem to be consistent. Those that have studied Roman culture and history doesn't seem to be consistent with what they would care about. They just care about the coin. 
But it would seem as though the Jews were being very careful to make sure the Romans got what the Romans wanted. So they wanted to make sure everyone goes back to the place of their lineage, report it clearly so that we can have good, accurate records so that we can say to the Roman government, we did what we were supposed to do. So that's why we see in a little bit, Joseph will migrate to Bethlehem. Though he's not living there, that's where he's from. His family lineage is from. So that's where they're going to travel. But all of these things under human direction, as we said, are really under supernatural direction. Proverbs 21 reminds us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is really important for us to, to know that, that, that all of these events and all of the, the patterns of this are something that was predetermined and stated because God wanted us to know that he knew what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. But Proverbs 21 gives us an understanding here that he is guiding these events, moving towards his plans and purposes. It had been prophesied for centuries before where the Savior would come from, what his purpose would be. In Micah 5.2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He will come from Bethlehem. But Joseph doesn't live in Bethlehem. How is he going to get there? Because God knew and orchestrated, you can sort out the theological lines there, that Caesar Augustus would say, I want everyone to be taxed. And the Jews would have an expectation in a system. He needs to do that in his place of lineage. Coincidentally, lining up with the prophecy from hundreds of years prior. And we know the purpose would be what we already heard in our reading from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that he would establish his throne and then the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So why does all of this matter to us? Why do we care about some of the cool historical details? Because it reminds us that we have a God who initiates our salvation. He isn't just reacting to it. He didn't just create us and say, I hope it goes well. And then all of a sudden, the snake comes along. He's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And then Eve was weaker than he thought. And then Adam was like supporting it and then blaming God and all these. God knew. He initiated a plan before those events took place. He knew the arrival would happen in Bethlehem. He knew all of these things would happen. And that has to give us peace and comfort that we don't serve a God who just reacts and has to come up with a plan B because his first plan failed. All of this is pointing to the God who initiates. And I was struck a little bit this morning when I came in and was greeted by an email, uh, Tim Valentine, who had given me the um, information about the concert that's happening in Kosovo and the church that we've supported and prayed for that Tim and Karen and others have served in personally. They're having this concert in an environment and in a political situation that wouldn't be real favorable to a lot of uh, Christian progress in that sense. And they're having this public concert, a worship concert and stuff right in the church. And so we prayed about that last week praying for the Lord to do uh, incredible things. And we got our times a little bit confused. I think it's actually happening somewhere around our noontime today. Um, we thought that maybe it would come and gone by the time we met this morning, but it's still uh, being prepared as we speak. 
And uh, they had an event this week where I, I say an event, but they had uh, a, cir- a circumstance arise this week that uh, the landlord of the property or something person next door had a son who was involved in a uh, robbery and murder and um, was then uh, and they found ties to um, ISIS and all these other kinds of things. So the government that the law enforcement came in really furious, hot and heavy to stamp out all this sort of stuff. So what they did was they started moving through the apartments of adjacent buildings and kicking doors in and everything, trying to find any other. There's somebody, I think a brother that's on the run and all this kind of um, chaos and confusion. So here's this humble, sweet, moving, motivated church preparing for their worship concert, doing their thing for God, right? To have all of this literally land on their doorstep, to have their front door completely obliterated and knocked in to the extent they had to grab their most valuable things and go stay with somebody else. And right in the middle of all of this stuff. Now, I think most of us would say that compared to something like the Christmas ham going wrong, this really messes with their Christmas plans. This really messes with all the things that they thought they were going to accomplish for God's good. What purpose could God really have for doing these things when it seems like everything else that they were putting their energies to would have given him glory? Was his glory robbed because all of these things have been taken from them and all this chaos has ensued? Maybe as a result of this concert going through, despite all of this uncertainty and all these difficulties, that his glory would be seen to a greater magnitude? We don't know his end in all things, but we know because he brought Christmas at the location and the time and for the reasons that he said he would, we know that he hasn't taken his eye off of us nor off of the Kosovars that they are preparing to worship the Lord in a powerful way in just mere hours, even though so many things in their lives have been turned upside down. It doesn't matter where we celebrate Christmas. Verse 4 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. This passage is, yes, pun intended, pregnant with physical landmarks and locations and things that we can look at and be amazed by all that God is accomplishing. Again, not the time nor the um, the uh, expertise or history to dig into all of that, but there's some very important things that we can see. When the scriptures are saying that Joseph also went up from Galilee, this isn't that he headed north because that wouldn't be the direction that he's actually going. It's more of topographical language because they were down here and heading up above sea level through the valleys, through the winds, through climbing up the hills and all that sort of thing. Some 90 mile trip with a young Joseph and perhaps an even younger childlike pregnant fiance. And they're going through the valleys, they're going through the hills, they're passing through places that we would recognize by name like Armageddon and Jordan River Valley and going through Jericho and all of these things that have incredible landmarks and power in the scripture. And they're journeying through all of those things while she is young, scared, 
excited to some extent because she's bought in on the mission of God that the angel of the Lord has told her to embrace. So she's in, but she's young. She's 14-ish maybe. Mary was very pregnant going on this journey. Now, I want us to see just one little takeaway from this. Think about the journey that God would send his faithful servants in Mary and Joseph on and all the terrain they'd have to uncover. If we could just see it all play out, how uncomfortable and difficult and scary and treacherous it was. Does this not speak to the lengths that God will go to bring us our salvation? Our rescuer travels through the roughest terrain just to find us. And if we're being honest, we've led him on that wild goose chase, haven't we, in our lives? We keep going down these dark and difficult uh, passages full of uh, uh, treachery and danger and thorns and thistles and all these things because our hearts, in its darkness, as we've already established, leads away from the light of God and runs from him. But because he loves us so much, he goes down those windy paths and finds us. He'll go through the, uncom- the discomfort. He'll go through the threat. He'll go through all of those things to reach us. We worship from time to time with the song that says, there's no mountain that God won't climb up. There's no darkness that he won't light up while he's coming after us. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no lie he won't tear down in his pursuit of us. So the physical terrain is a reminder of the lengths that God will go. To bring us our salvation. The little reference here to the swaddling clothes, and it's important, I'm sure, for more reasons than I can um, identify. And, and a lot's been speculated about the swaddling clothes and being laid in a manger. And But the bottom line here is that there's really no uh, for certain knowledge as to why this was important for, for important enough for Luke to continue to mention. And for the angels to point to the shepherds and say, go look for the one who's wrapped in swaddling clothes. My mind goes immediately to the care of a mother who wraps her baby in tight. It was one of the funniest things for me. I didn't know before we had children. I didn't know babies were wrapped this tight. And so I started seeing the technique and it was just like this baby's like packed in. Just this big red head sticking out and just wrapped tight around this thing. And I was like, boy, there's, there's a body in there. I mean, that's tiny. How is that happening? But it gave that security and that sense of like being back in the womb and the safety of that and everything. It's the most adorable thing. And so I started getting good at, you know, tight packing and all this kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And I think my kids are okay as a result of my attempts, but I'm not sure. So I see the mother's care in this. I see just normal as how you raise children. But some have speculated. And again, I am underscoring this is speculation. Okay, please keep that in mind. But it wouldn't be beyond the Lord or unlike God to have multiple meanings for the things that he does and things that he wants us to see. Some have said that uh, travelers in those days would go um, on long journeys, especially those that would be uh, pretty dangerous, packing their own somewhat like burial preparation clothes, which sounds weird to us. If you die on the journey, you can't pack, you know, you can't wrap yourself up. But as a courtesy to those who might have the kindness to find them and deal with the body that they're finding, that there would already be some, some cloth uh, in their pack or something that they could use to start wrapping the body. Again, I don't know these things, but I've come across some of these 
uh, educated uh, stories and stuff and wonder, well, that's interesting because we know that our Savior came to die. We know that it was prophesied from the beginning, particularly we see it in Isaiah, that he came with the mission of laying his life down, that it was his stripes that would heal us, that he wasn't coming to just live forever on this earth and be victorious in all that he did and to be a positive example. He came to lay his life down underscoring some of that a little bit more that others have said that these shepherds uh, might have been priestly shepherds and those shepherds were the ones who would raise lambs in particular towards the sacrifice. So the firstborn lamb would come out and they'd say, okay, we want to make sure this one's preserved in perfection so it can be a future sacrifice at the altar for the sins of the people. And so what they would do is wrap that lamb tight to make sure it would protect itself from its own wobbly condition and its inability to keep itself from danger, to make sure this one's been set apart specifically to give its blood. I find those things to be very fascinating, and I I don't have a hard time believing that the Lord built all those things into a tiny little phrase that he will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger Perhaps you've done your own study on this. Perhaps you've seen really what a manger looks like. I find these to be much more artistic and more pleasant to look at than what I've had described for me for a manger. But it would probably be more like a caravansary, which is just a hotelish kind of station for travelers coming through. Stone structures that are like we have these individual places for you to stay. That would be the inn. And there would be a parking lot, if you will, in the center of all of that where you would leave your livestock, your animals, so there would be various feeding troughs made of stone and that sort of thing. And it seems as though that's the kind of thing that Jesus was laid in, some kind of stone hollowed out whatever that the animals would typically be drooling in and all that sort of stuff. Well, we're going to make this a crib. You moms, you're right to twitch at that thought and to think, I couldn't. I've seen moms care about where their baby is going to be, that what's that first blanket going to feel like and what the, what the nursery is going to look like as it's being decorated and all those sorts of things. I guarantee you that even though Mary was young, this was not her expectation of what her first nursery would look like. And yet that's where she lays him. So there's all these physical uh, indicators to us that things are different and unique but purposeful for a reason. Because we know that God owns the physical, that all things in this uh, uh, life that we can touch, see, and smell have implications for the spiritual. I don't think it's a stretch to see that the manger of which Jesus was laid and which he was born in and laid in and the clothes that he was wrapped in point us to the fact that he was humble and he was accessible for our salvation. All that people knew of God was a God of power, one of precision in what he expected, that his, his, um, he, it was a distance between his holiness and the sinfulness of people. And so God coming in human form, God coming in humility, even in a place like a manger, even wrapped in swaddling clothes like everybody else had to be, now made God approachable. We understand the humility from the aspect of just that that would be God's plan, that his own son would be born in those disgusting conditions? Why would he do that? Why does it matter where we celebrate Christmas? Because he wanted us to draw near to him. 
Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, where it could be that, that you would see that as he put off all the perks that came with being the Son of God, the protected one, the celebrated one, the, the glorified one. He set those aside, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, but even a little bit worse than that. Most of us couldn't perceive ourselves being born in a feeding trough or in a stable, or most of us couldn't see ourselves traveling 90 miles on some kind of donkey or some kind of method that would make it uncomfortable for the journey and that sort. Most of us have been born in better conditions than he was, all to be accessible to us, that we could approach God and be at his feet now, where before there was a curtain of distance that kept us from his holiness. Now we can come to him. So let's make this personal as we wrap this up. Does it matter how I celebrate Christmas? We know from the account in verse 7 that there was no place for them in the inn. It reminds me of the Ebenezer Scrooge quote when he's frustrated by his nephew who is just perking of life for Christmas and can't wait to celebrate it and everything. And Scrooge replies, he just says, bah humbug. He says, you keep Christmas in your own way and allow me to keep it in mine. We know from his whole affect and everything, he wasn't keeping Christmas. He was just saying, leave me alone. Let me do my thing. The perfect representative representation of a closed heart. He's not keeping Christmas if he's doing it in his own way. The innkeeper here had no idea who he was turning away. From a human level, we could all just kind of say, look, if that were me, I'd probably be like, you're just cashing out receipts. You're just booking people. You're making sure the animals aren't eating all the shrubbery and all that kind of stuff. You're not sitting there going, oh, I wonder if this is the moment where the savior of the world has come to take up residence in my inn. You're not thinking that. The, the preparation for looking for the savior comes well before the night of his arrival. And, and this is what we go through. This is what we are guilty of. John 1 says that Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. How do we reject God? How has all humanity just pushed off and said, I don't have room for you here. Just bear with me a couple more minutes while we're wrapping this up. I want to just read a quote here from John Stott, who I think is sums it up brilliantly. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, don't we? I deserve to be worshipped, celebrated, adored, and protected. But God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That is the closeness of our hearts. That, as we are that innkeeper who has no room for Jesus, that is what we're doing. No, I have my own throne I'm building. I don't have time for you to come try to sit on it. How or why or where do we celebrate Christmas? We celebrate it with an open heart. I said to you that God came to his own. Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him in John 1. But he also continues to say, to us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
and the word became flesh. This is the Christmas heralding. This is the, this is the announcement of Emmanuel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. His glory came to that humble manger to display who God really is. He is accessible. He is approachable. He is saving. And this is what we miss. This is why we so often close the doors of our inn and say, I'm not interested. I don't have time. I don't have space. I'm not sure I'm ready to follow you into all of this. How is he God with us? To the hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. To those stumbling in darkness, he's the light of the world. To those gripped with anxiety, he is rest for their souls. To those who have seemed to have failed at everything, who can't put anything together, he is the vine that is working through us that ties us in to his father. To the fearful, he is the resurrection over our greatest fear, which is death. To the lost, to the lied to, to the dead, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is Emmanuel, God with us. So does it matter when or why or where or how we celebrate Christmas? It matters when because Christmas can only be celebrated in the daytime of our rescue. It matters why because Christmas can only be celebrated under the purpose of God's plan. And it matters where because Christmas can only be celebrated in the lower places of humility. And it matters how because Christmas can only be celebrated in the openness of a change in receptive heart. So as we're launching into this season and we're taking a beat to just prepare ourselves for all that's coming on like a flurry. Do you recognize that God is traveling the dangerous paths of your sin to rescue you in your darkest hour? Do you believe that he is the son of God that has been sent here to win you to the father and that by believing you can have life in his name? It's my prayer that if you're lost and stumbling in the darkness, you make this Christmas the one that you finally received the one gift you could never repay the gift of your own heart's rescue. For those of you who are walking in the faith, who know Christ as your savior and you've received Christmas into your hearts in that sense. This is our opportunity to bring the impact of Christmas into the darkness around us. We know that we walk in a land of chaos and despair and lethargy and distraction and entertainment and all those things. And we sometimes grow cynical as though there's no way for us to turn this around. There's no impact we can really make. It's just the way it's going out there. I'm encouraging you. I'm imploring you not to give in to the cynicism, not to give up on the fact that God has still has incredible impact and purpose for Christmas. If you are at home, you can see that God has purposed this time for his arrival in your family and you are the conduit to introduce him. Rather than seeing everything on the defensive, how is Christmas going to treat me this year? What stresses is it going to hand to me? Look for the opportunity to bring the light to the chaos that Christmas brings to the entire world, but do it under the roof of your own house. As you're working and people are somewhat alleviated that we're moving into the Christmas season or that they're stressed, not sure what their Christmas bonus is going to look like, any of the other things that we, that we deal with in our work and in our daily lives, understand that God has gone the distance for the rescue of those that are around you. That your compassion and your, your, your prayer and your dedication and your thinking of opportunities to shine the light of the arrival of the Savior 
in the lives of those around you is upon you. And this is an opportunity for us to do just that. I'm going to ask if you would please stand and join me in prayer. And thank the Lord for all that he has done in this time, all that he's done throughout history leading up to today. Lord, we do want to thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us throughout all the generations. Lord, we recognize that we are uh, most likely a generation to bridge the gap between a faithful legacy of your work and the one that is coming after us to be able to look back on the faithfulness of God. So I pray that we would be before you in this time. I pray that we'd be mindful of this thing, these things. I pray that we'd represent you well. And uh, Lord, we do pray for uh, families that are coming into this time who have uh, significant difficulties and challenges or maybe health crises or recent losses and all the things that can make Christmas both a heightened time of joy for many, but also a uh, low time of sorrow for many others. So we pray for your peace and comfort. We know, Lord, that's what you came to provide. But Lord, we also pray that lives would be changed, that hearts would be transformed. We thank you, Lord, for doing that in our lives. We give you back everything that we own, Lord, in faith, knowing that what we give you, the little that we give you here on this earth, will be magnified and multiplied in the day to come. We trust you in this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.